0: So, funny story. In last week's episode, I managed to misidentify the role that Dan Payne plays in Star Trek Beyond. The character's name is Wajet, but he's not crawls Heavy, he's actually one of the good guys, an Enterprise security guard who assists in and Uhura's escape attempt. I watched the entire movie looking at the wrong actor. I'm an idiot. Sorry, Dan. Still a good episode, though. My guest this week is Tori Higginson, who's currently starring as Natalie Lawson on CBC's This Life, airing Sundays at 9 p.m., she also appears in Space's Dark Matter and the web series In Human Condition, and you can see her this Friday in Canada in the new movie The History of Love. Tori picked Wings of Desire, Wim Wenders' essential 1987 drama starring Bruno Ganz as Damiel, a lonely angel who watches over the souls of Berlin and finds himself drawn to a trapeze artist, played by Solveig Domartin, and through her, to the human world. If you've seen it, you know exactly why I just called it essential. If you haven't, well, you kind of need to see it shooting the world of the angels in lustrous black and white while rendering human experience in grainy color, Vendors created a rapturous study of what it means to be alive and engaged with the world and the people around us, which I think is something we badly need right now. Also, Peter Falk. We could use him too. This is someone else's movie.
1: I started thinking, what movies, you know, have a thematic similarity to the show that I'm doing? Because, you know, that sort of publicity and talking about sure, so yeah. I try to connect it. And I was thinking about things like Sarah Polly's Away From Her. And then I thought about The Martian even. And, and, and I was thinking, but I'm going to have to re-watch those because I, I would have to rewatch them to have a, a deep conversation about it. And I just, then out of the back of my head went, oh, Wings of Desire. It was sort of my favorite film for all throughout theater school. It's, I, I would go it used to always play at the Review Cinema around the corner from where I lived in Portobello I was going to school in London actually yes. and uh, I would go to see it probably once a month for about three years I just would visit it all the time oh. so and I thought and thematically it's kind of similar as well there's some really sort of nice crossover things about humanity and, and what it is to be human and the, the uncertainty of it and the pain of it and that it's the pain is is worth it yeah it's worth it
0: it's an interest- as soon as you put it in that Frame, as soon as you put it in that perspective I realized, yeah, of course, because this life Is about someone who is suddenly I mean, she's not Thrust into her life exactly But she's suddenly thrust at a remove And, and she's Paying more attention, I suppose is the best way To put it, than everyone else is
1: Yeah
0: uh, And in Wings of Desire It's, it's observers Suddenly participating Right, I mean, that's the that's the long arc of the film is to is to show us how how Danielle lands yeah. in in our world essentially. Yeah. But it is just such a. I think I had more or less the same experience the first time I saw it was at the Blur Cinema, and it was the movie that everyone was sort of obliged to go and see if they were studying the arts. Uh, and I had managed to miss it theatrically on its initial release, and then it. It was it just never left the blur. It was there constantly. It was on the rep circuit. It's true, right? I'm I sure it that. still is. It probably oh well yeah. because the
1: blur is now Doc, but it's probably still on the rep circuit. Sur- yeah, circuit, I Yeah, I'm sure
0: it plays the review every now and then or, Yeah. Or, and and it's the kind of movie that you know, the, the joke about uh, oh it's they might be giants. They tell the story about how they're constantly being discovered because there's always a new generation, and there's a, then there's always a new year of college freshmen. There's always people going, "Oh, these guys are cool. Where oh, did they come funny.
1: from?" Isn't Nick Nick Cave and the Bat, They might be giants.
0: Uh, no, but it's the same effect. Like people oh, discover yeah. Wings of desire because they see the poster up in somebody's dorm room. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. it's
1: playing at the studio. I got you. I, yeah, I was in my brain. I was thinking, well, because yeah. the Nick Cave and the Bat seeds are. And Wings yeah, of Desire yeah. so I was I was connecting Where's that the, thought that they get discovered because of Wings of Desire yeah.
0: although I guess they're, those are both they, they probably do as well I yeah. mean they're definitely the, the Nick K factor uh, is so strong and I, I don't think I'd ever seen him in anything before I saw him in that
1: I don't think I had either I'd already been a fan of his I was sort of a little punk rock music fan at that age <laughs> so I'd already loved his stuff and I was so surprised he was in the film I didn't know he was in the film when I wanted to see it yeah that would be part of what took me back every time. Yeah, <laughs>
0: the thing about vendors that that kind of falls by the wayside now because he has been doing this for so long that he's he's become this minted auteur who's taken very very seriously. But his his musical taste, his sensibility, his love of American culture—it all comes together in Wings of Desire, which is also his most German movie. Uh, it's this thing. polyglot, it's this bursting thing, and and I, I have a.
1: That's yeah.
0: I have a real soft spot for movies that capture a point in time that isn't possible to visit anymore. Yeah, and you know, you're watching a film about the Berlin Wall before it falls down, but it's all—it's coming. You know, like the whole energy of the movie is that it's on its way. This shift, this big transformative moment.
1: It's when, when was the film at? It was eighty. 80-
0: Eighty-eight, I think. Was it eighty-eight? I will check with this. This is. And the, when the way to reference? Something.
1: When was the Berlin Wall? That was ninety-one. Nineteen
0: eighty-seven, and the wall fell in
1: eighty-nine. I think. Eighty-nine. Oh gosh! Wow. 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 Yes, it was right there. Yeah. Right there, and
0: you can see. I mean, the the, uh, the black and white and color contrast. Yeah. You, know, you actually see how alive Berlin is. So yeah, I mean, we we see this as outsiders anyway. So not being German ourselves and not not seeing it in germany there's a removed perspective but then to also have the humanity and angel perspectives mm-hmm. it's yeah i'm talking all i'm doing all the talking
1: <laughs> uh, <it laughs> just <It's> good. <laughs> such a
0: magnificent film about perspectives and alienation and isolation yeah. and this yearning to connect but
1: yeah. and then you have the american actor that's in that world yes. so he's an outsider and then you have that whole observation of the role of an actor observing and being a part of and what is that balance and
0: yeah. Yeah. And an American actor working in a foreign language, in a mm-hmm. foreign land. It's it's practically a handbook to empathy. Oh, I mean, as that's films beautiful. Go, you just sit there and you understand what it's like to be all of these people, including the angels, including people who aren't people. Yeah. Uh, really. And I, I have to say, I'm, I'm probably getting all the important stuff out too fast, but uh, I met Peter Falk a couple years later and that's him. Like, he's not acting. He's really? He's simply... I, I Um, would be if he hadn't well I suppose I was going to say if he hadn't died but he did die because he would die because he was a human I would still believe that Peter Falk actually was an angel who came to earth who decided to become human and then just told vendors a story and he's like that would be a good idea for a film
1: (laughs) it's it's just the
0: warmest most
1: um, I love that phrase a handbook for empathy it's a beautiful phrase
0: uh, I'm probably stealing it from Ebert (laughs) I mean he called cinema the empathy machine so oh that's interesting okay
1: yeah yeah but it's lovely it is that and what I love about it too is just that absolute there's a line in it I remember something about um, a sign about being being amazed by men and women is what made him human the yeah, amazement yeah. and and then that decision to be human to give up your immortality like we live in a culture we don't want to talk about death we don't like to think about death we only really honor youth so you sort of think in our culture if somebody said you could be immortal and live forever we would all go yes I'll take that but you have just that beautiful simple lesson of but would we and, yeah. and even knowing all the pain and all the loneliness to choose to do that I would rather see in color for a day yeah
0: it's such so, an inconceivable challenge, I mm-hmm. guess to to portray a species or a, an entity that isn't us mm-hmm. and simply by creating this sort of alien structure for everything, there's uh, this whispering that can influence us but they can't necessarily save us um, and they feel pain but they can't experience Passion—at least it seems that way—until until Daniel mm-hmm. sees uh, Del Martin and is struck by her beauty and yeah. all that. And it, it is this—it plays on the level of a fairy tale where you could watch it without sound and understand everything that's going on.
1: That's the other thing I love about it, which which is. Um because it is, it's a visual medium, it, it's a poem, like it's a beautiful poem, that that a visual poem, that, that film in particular, but film is a visual medium, and, and so it's television to a, a certain degree, but we get so caught up in trying to jam-pack so much information, and it gets very wordy, and one of the series I love right now is Transparent, because mm-hmm. they allow so much space, there's so much space, there'll be scenes of like four minutes with three lines sometimes, and... You get that, I mean, we're allowed to then feel so much when we're not being, we're not having to digest all the language, we're allowed to just have the image wash over and the emotion wash over. Yeah,
0: I mean, especially given that Transparent was designed to be watched, you know, it's an Amazon show, so presumably they're expecting people to watch it on computers, where everything is about keeping you focused and busy and have something happening, to to see a show that breathes like that, even though, Mm -hmm. I was going to say, in Transparency... Most of the most of the action in Transparent is seething based, mm-hmm. where people are just sitting there and stewing. In that's true, <laughs> each other. but that's compelling,
1: and they do it so well. Yeah, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, but yeah, this, the, the silence, the space, and wings of desire I find really compelling yeah. and inviting.
0: So how um, how did this the, the repeat viewing enhance or affect? Is uh, is are pieces of it more vivid to you did you discover things as you watched it
1: over? I mean I actually haven't rewatched it I need to re-watch it I, I haven't watched it in full for probably over five years now oh yeah. and um and probably since I was at theatre school, I mean, I watched it literally every month for three years. Every month. Right. It was my go-to. And then I probably in my 20s watched it a lot more. I haven't watched it that much for probably the last 15, 20 years, to okay. be honest. But
0: if you saw it that many times initially, it's I've, in you.
1: It's in me, yeah. yeah I've, got, um, I've got just the the images. I love the, the, just, again, that idea that children and animals sense all that other world and that, that silent connection between mm. those... The smiles, the Bruno gowns just smiling at the children. And I just love that. Um, yeah, the 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 moment, I remember too, that first moment that he sees in color and he's asking about the colors. He's looking at the graffiti yeah. and he's asking. He doesn't know what the names are. And everything's new. He's a child. Yeah. He becomes a child. Yeah, it's just, it's such
0: a... And of course, he's seeing uh, a symbol of... Of communism, Like, it's yeah. the wall. It's not simply graffiti. It's yeah. a barrier. It's suddenly, you know, he's being... Not only is he staring in wonderment at everything around him, but he's also confronted with a limitation that wasn't there before for him because he could simply move away or back and forth or, or ignore obstacles and obstructions. There's no indication... You know, oh. Berlin is sort of his territory, but there's no indication that they can't travel around. Yeah, and just be their yeah. celestial
1: beings. See, I missed all that. Oh, that's well. completely, of course. I'm
0: a deep reader, of course. <laughs> that's how it goes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, yeah no, it's, it's just one of those things where you you keep finding out new pieces of the design. They they keep revealing themselves to you mm-hmm. over the decades, and and that's what I meant about being able to watch this, this piece of. Recording uh, this piece of recorded history that wasn't uh, intentionally a historical document, yeah. but now, of course, that's not there and that world isn't there anymore. Yeah, and it's so fascinating to see just how people relate to the wall, how the characters are are they're not afraid of it, they're not they're not bothered by it, they're simply used to it. They've they're people there who were born after it was erected and they simply accept it as a a limitation of their world. Yeah, and then to have Bruno Gahn's characters suddenly confront all of these things anew. I mean, now you get to watch it and think, "Oh, that's right. They wouldn't have noticed that either." Yeah. But for us, it's this this scar that runs through the entire city.
1: It's the... so funny. It's so true because I mean, I think for me, the one was I watching it. Yeah. I mean, I was just so caught up in the thematics of um, of just of humanity and love and compassion and I and I didn't even take into account really the The politics of it. The politics of it. What an actor. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say, you can absolutely experience it as absent
0: any politics because it's about emotions. It's entirely about emotions um, and the quest for them and and the importance of them. But I think now it's weirdly more significant as... A political allegory that probably wasn't intended in the first place.
1: Absolutely, that's uh, really interesting. I'm going to go and purchase it today and
0: and watch it tonight. The Criterion Blu-ray, for any of you listening at home, is yeah. absolutely exquisite. It's uh, Venter's has been doing. Um, we I finally got to meet him. Um, we like, we know some of the same people in one of those weird little coincidences, but I didn't get to talk to him until just last year when he came through TIFF with "Everything Will Be Fine" mm. and. It was one of those conversations where, I mean, he's a former film critic. He's he's as geeky as I am about stuff. Uh, we'd spent most of our time talking about 3D cameras and how he truly believes they're going to change the nature of drama. Really? Uh, he Wow. There's a... I can't... It sounds so pompous. There's a moment in Everything Will Be Fine, which is not a great movie, but as a test case for... This is how you can shoot a drama in 3D. It's a really interesting one. There's a moment in, in the film where the camera is just James Franco's face in 3D, and he does this little tiny thing, and it, it's just a simple physical motion. And it's like you're actually seeing him act for the first time because of the, the weird intimacy of having his, the bridge of his nose be three inches closer than the forehead. It's, oh, wow. It really does dimensionalize drama in a way that I would not have thought possible. And so we talked about that a lot. But he also mentioned that And he's excited about that.
1: He's is. excited he, about and Avengers it, actually, that. He
0: genuinely the last the, the film he made this year which I haven't seen which he brought to TIFF is a two-character play filmed in 3D. Oh wow.
1: at a
0: lake house somewhere I think in, in maybe I don't want to say Lake Como but I'm probably wrong about that but somewhere in Europe. Yeah. Um and it's just two actors and and text And he made a movie.
1: See, I'd be interested to see a 3D film in that sort of context. Because the only ones I've seen are really big action fantasy. and and So, yeah, I'd be interested to see how it affects you when it is just a conversation. And that's what you're saying. It is quite... It's
0: surprisingly compelling. You basically have to be trapped in the dark with it. I don't know that it would work at home. I don't know it would work on a smaller screen. But in a great big auditorium... The, just the sense that you're watching someone breathe you're watching someone exist in a moment that kind of worked um, it comes close in Baz Luhrmann's Great Gatsby there's a scene, uh, there's just one scene in a hotel where in a hotel suite rather, where the character is just with, the camera is just with the characters yeah. as they're having a conversation and you think, this could actually work You could. it's like being on stage with the actors and just choosing which vantage point you're going to take Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, it's weird. For all of our, you know, for all of our fumbling with virtual reality filmmaking, I think that's how it's going to work, maybe. Yeah. Put a camera, a 360-degree camera in the center of a stage, let actors perform, and then allow the audience to wander around in that space and watch the performance. That could be fascinating.
1: That's interesting. Well, I know, I mean, it's sort of a different take, but the... um the National in Britain, they will film all of their, right, yeah. their theater. And just seeing that, I've got to see a few of those productions. And because they put cameras all over, I go, oh, this is a really interesting perspective of theater. It's mm-hmm. changing. It's still a theatrical play, but you're changing your perspective of it. And you're able to... You feel you're moving around a little bit because yeah. they're cutting.
0: Did you see the Danny Boyle Frankenstein
1: a yeah, couple of years back?
0: I did. That was one where he was very clearly directing it Yeah, for theater and screen at the he same time. was conscious time. of,
1: yeah. yeah. But
0: the, it worked. It, I mean, worked. it was really interesting it, and it gives you a perspective
1: that you could not have. I mean, there were overhead shots. There mm-hmm. was, um. The because th- filming theater usually does not work. It yeah. just doesn't work. It's two very different mediums and just to have a, the back camera, the flat, just things get lost completely.
0: Yeah. And with, um, with the 3D stuff, Fenders does seem to be onto something, and and he huh. had jokingly said that if he would, if he was given the chance, he might create a 3D version of Wings of Desire, a post 3D version, but he would only do it for the color sequences.
1: Oh, okay. To so, like taking that up another notch, exactly to sort of only... demonstrate
0: the, the the sense of feeling and the sense of overwhelming.
1: Existence, oh God! He's right? so
0: Cool. That could work. That could work. And I kind of want him to do oh, it. Oh yes, but oh, it would change the color balances, the light levels. You know, three like yeah. makes everything darker. Uh, and it has to because you not only is the filter on the camera on the on the camera, not only is the filter on the projector in the theater, but it's also the glasses that you're wearing. So you have to screw with the light levels to make it look real again.
1: Oh, it's much
0: more complex than people initially think. I was stunned by how difficult it is to post convert something properly. Because you're also counting on, this is something that, who said, who told me this? Uh, either Alfonso Cuaron or Guillermo del Toro, was the same year. Uh, that they were explaining that not only do you have to get the color right in the 3D version, because you're using two panels to mm-hmm. create the 3D, the depth of 3D, but you're also relying on having a proper projectionist. So the bulb is fresh and the theater is well-maintained. Any tiny calculation will make your film look darker and duller.
1: Oh, okay. So
0: it's exhausting. And when Vendor says, I think I could do Wings of Desire that way, it's like, yeah, but the black and white sequences are going to get a lot less lustrous. There's that, that silver texture that, that makes them yeah. so gorgeous. They're so beautiful.
1: Did you ever see the American version? What is it sound like? Angels?
0: Oh, City of Angels. City of Angels. Yes. I never.
1: I didn't see it. Oh, it's,
0: it's terrible. Is it? Yeah. It's actually a really good example for why the political aspect of the film is so important. Why, oh. why the... The, the presence of the wall matters because without it—that whole thing that I missed—I'm
1: <laughs> wow. sure you, I don't think I missed it completely. Yeah. I just, yeah. yeah, like what sat with me is the yeah,
0: well, certainly the, the idea of a, the of a man in of a, of a man of, an, of a certainly the idea of a character in 1987 <laughs> Germany yearning for freedom yeah. at the cost of his own yeah immortality. That's that's part of it anyway. Yeah, no, absolutely. But yeah, you remove that, and you really do have just this. Clumsy idea of Nicolas Cage being so smitten nice. with Meg Ryan that he gives up everything for her, and then they just oh, they come up with some really terrible angles on that. <laughs> it's it's it is absolutely possible to remake good films well. It just doesn't happen very often doesn't because very so mo- so more uh, it doesn't happen very often. Yeah, so many times it's simply someone thinking oh I can do that better. I have an idea that will work, and it. Just doesn't the material just fights it. I mean, in, in City of Angels, which I hesitate to spoil. Cause I don't know that you can spoil it because it's terrible. <laughs> um, but uh, he, uh, our hero, becomes human. They have one wonderful night together, and she's hit by a truck. Uh, uh-huh. But she is hit by a truck in the most ludicrous and 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 mm-hmm. sort of hand wringing melodramatic way. She goes for a bicycle ride after. Uh, waking up with him and she just goes off and she's, you know, she's riding with her arms thrown back and she lifts her head up to the sky and the audience is going truck, 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 truck. There's just, it's so telegraphed and so clumsy that when it happens, I mean, I saw it with a preview audience at the Upton and I don't think most of them even knew it was a remake and they just rejected it. Really? They were laughing at it and it was was Oh, that's painful. Yeah. The one great idea is that, um, uh, Andre Brouwer plays, um, place Cassiel or the the Cassio equivalent. Okay. And he's great. He's just an absolute he was doing homicide at the time, and there's yeah. a little bit of Frank Pendleton to him. He's just oh. a no bullshit angel, yeah, uh, which is terrific.
1: Oh, nice, yeah. that's nice.
0: Yeah, I mean the 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 better Wings of Desire, the better American remake of Wings of Desire is probably the Prophecy. The, the uh, I haven't seen that. No, it's the Christopher Walken Angel War movie, which nobody oh. remembers or has even I've heard of. Write it down though. Sure, uh, it's here somewhere. I'll show it to you. Uh, but it's a um, it's a it's a very heavy serious. Kind of horror movie that that Miramax made in 1992, 93. It was called God's Army originally. They retitled it, and it stars Christopher Walken as the angel, the archangel Gabriel, come to Earth to see. I believe that already. Christopher
1: Walken, that'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, but what <laughs> they did was they stole the look. Okay. Uh, so they're just, they're guys in great coats and walking around with, with this big weight on them. Yeah. And it's Walken and Eric Stoltz and Viggo Mortensen shows up as the devil in a really early role. Oh my it's,
1: gosh, how have I not seen this movie? Yeah, it's
0: it spawned a bunch of terrible sequels, which is probably why yeah. if you ever saw it on a wall somewhere, you'd think, oh, I don't know about that. But it's it's actually pretty great. Yeah. And it uses your knowledge of Wings of Desire as part of a narrative. It's If you have seen it. You will immediately get what, what the director Gregory Wyden is going for, and it's kind of great.
1: Mm-hmm. Um,
0: but it's all about five years later, I think, and just about acknowledging just how iconic and important Vendors' film was. Yeah. And then Vendors made the sequel, uh, Far Away So Close, which,
1: eh didn't really didn't really land. grab yeah. yeah did you see it? Yeah, no I haven't seen that with? either I've only seen one film in my life and it was Wings of Desire no. about 20 years ago it's a good one <laughs> I mean,
0: if you have to pick one
1: <laughs> it's not a bad one to pick
0: yeah well Far Away we So I'll Close picks this. up with the characters and
1: oh it's the same oh yeah kind of Peter Fox in it again, okay oh Willem Willem Dafoe yes
0: Willem Dafoe is playing he's the ostensible villain who introduces himself as Emmett Flesty and then spells his name out so we can understand that it's actually time itself written backwards Oh really? Yeah, it's a little more naive, and it's an unnecessary sequel. I mean, there's nothing. There's nothing at the end of Wings of Desire that's really left
1: no. hanging. No, we
0: know they live happily ever after. That's sort of the point. Yeah. And in the film, we do get to see what happily ever after means, which is sort of nice. Like, um, uh, Demiel's just—I think he's running a pizza shop, if I remember correctly.
1: Uh. Just, just <laughs> awesome. sort of
0: living quietly with with her, and yeah. everything's fine.
1: They've stopped the um, the circus.
0: Yeah, off. she. I mean, maybe she still performs. I want to say she does. I want to say there's a scene, at least one scene, where she's sort of mm-hmm. doing it, but it's just casual now. It's not. She's settled down with him, so she's yeah. not traveling anymore.
1: I mean, what I feel about the end of Wings Desire, though, is that it doesn't matter. I mean, I kind of get that with the um, the explanation of the American version. To me, it doesn't matter if they are together for sixty years or for a week mm. or that's the only time. It doesn't matter. It's like to me the whole what I got from the film is that life and humanity is so confusing and fabulous it's worth it for a day yeah. like it's sort of worth it and and it's worth all the pain it's worth all the unknowing I love that I remember them talking to the other angel about to not know what a what a joy it'd be to not yeah. know
0: yeah it is it's it's kind of that well. It's the same thing that James Cameron's always doing. You know, like the idea that we love a lifetime's worth in, in the one day that comprises both Terminator and Titanic. He has these huge love stories packed into small windows of time. Yeah. And then somebody gets killed. Or The Abyss, where you basically need to watch your love die in order to save her and renew yeah. the relationship. He's, he's He never admits it, but he's a huge romantic. Aww, and like these films... Yeah, the... Um, Wings specifically Faraway Cyclist kind of fumbles the ball in the last act. Just it becomes the kind of movie that vendors often makes, which is he follows a concept down a rabbit hole and just never comes out again.
1: Okay. Uh,
0: but Wings is so so rigid in a weird way, even though it feels like it isn't because mm-hmm. it drifts and it moves from character to character and it just shows you snippets and gets lost in people, but it's always from Demiel's perspective. Um, you know, when we watch the, the trapeze sequence, it's because he can't not look. He's he's smitten by her. Yeah. But there's so much more to it because it's about all the other things that are happening. And the sound design is so important in those scenes, too, because it sort of just drifts away. We're hearing so many whispers and so much constant I love that. motion. I love the
1: whispers. Yeah. I love the layers. and the. It's like water. It sort of comes like waves.
0: Yeah, and when it drops out, we really... Yeah, I don't think by I think by the time those sequences happen, we're trained to be hearing it, and so when it drops out, we don't realize it's dropped out, but we focus more. Yeah, like part of the brain is trying to figure out what's different.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's an interesting look at it. That makes sense because it does. It feels so soft and airy and inviting, but it is. Yeah, it is very um, specific. Very specific. Yeah. Well, he's so specific with his music and his sound. Always right. That means a lot to him.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and the music choices again. You know, to to have cave to to be distracted for a little while by a cave musical number, which is so scary, powerful. Yeah. Um, because it's and our, again, you know, you can argue that it's a distraction within the film, but it's also something so compelling that it is life. It's yeah. it's part of what draws Demiel in. But the. power of that sequence. I I had never seen anything like it. And just the fury that he brings to the performance. I I, I once saw Nick Cave this sounds so stupid, so great I swear it's true. Uh, Kate and I were in England and we were staying in a hotel called the K-West which as it turns out she got it booked through her work but it turns out that it's a a record label hotel. They use it a lot. So whatever record label Nick Cave was on Mm -hmm. had put him there. So we were waiting uh, for something. I think we were waiting to be picked up in the morning. And Nick Cave was quietly eating porridge at the (laughs) breakfast bar. And he was staring at it like it had disappointed him. There was this (laughs) incredible beetle-browed fury. And it was amazing. And it's like, that's how I want Nick Cave to be all the time.
1: Mad at his porridge. Just, just. (laughs) <laughs> that's so yeah, great
0: displeased he wasn't angry it was, it was displeasure
1: oh that's so great what a fabulous image oh i've had a crush on him my entire <laughs> so as a teenager i find him so compelling well i mean this movie
0: would do it if you saw it at the right age that alone yeah he is incredibly magnetic and of course the bad boy vulnerability and i'm not going to tell them about the girl i want to tell you about a girl it's just yeah. it's great and it's this thing that vendors does this innate understanding of musicians
1: yeah that yeah and his love of music because i wasn't even aware until after the whole buena vista social club yeah i didn't even realize that was him yeah. like there was this huge thing about this movie i'm like wait that's a, a vendors movie
0: yeah but it makes sense because he just like he follows his he follows his interests and and there's a handful of I guess it's probably a result of financing more than anything else, that you can do it when you're, you know, Herzog does it all the time. Mm -hmm. You can, if you're well, if you're known well enough on a festival circuit, you're likely to pull international financing. You can put stuff together. Yeah. Uh, Olivier Assayas, is another one. He once, he came through town doing interviews for something. It must have been, um, oh, something in the air. Uh And he was here putting funding together for what would I think become Clouds of Silmaria but he was here meeting with investors and his film was opening in a couple of months so Mongrel had an early press day for him
1: Okay. and we
0: were talking and he just said oh yeah I've got meetings tomorrow and what? Why Why do you have meetings in Toronto in October? What, shouldn't you have done it in TIFF? And he's like well this is when everybody's around and we can talk about financing that's just how you live Yeah. and so if you, I guess if you find documentary money and a band playing that you're interested in you can make something you can just like one of his social club,
1: and then you're supporting the thing that you love. Yeah, he's oh, that's wonderful. Did you like him,
0: vendors? Yeah. Oh, yeah. No, he is was, he easy to talk to? He was really easy to talk to. Yeah, he's not intimidating at all. He's nice. I have I mean I've interviewed all of them actually. Now that I'm thinking About Herzog as well, and Herzog is is. Delightfully weird because oh. he just he knows how people perceive him, and I think he's yeah. in the last few years he's really playing into he's it. He's
1: enjoying it. It's yeah. one of my favorite documentaries. My best fiend. James oh my yes, Beast, my best fiend. My best fiend. My yeah. best fiend. Oh, I love that
0: so yes. much. I would happily have killed him had the opportunity presented itself. It's he's, just, he's wonderful. It's isn't? like
1: a megalomaniac making a movie but another megalomaniac.
0: Yeah, <laughs> it's just fabulous. Yeah, and with with vendors you get none of that. You just get he's he's one of those filmmakers. He's one of those artists, I suppose. It's not just for film. He's really interested in whatever you might be talking about. And he will just keep... He asks more questions than I do. Beautiful. In the course of the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Which is how we got into the whole wonky 3D thing. Because, you know, well, what did you think of... Did, did you think it worked? And I said, well, there's this one shot. he's like, yes, we worked very hard on that. It took forever.
1: Yeah, oh, nice.
0: But James was willing to do it. And I was like, yeah, okay. But, but, but why? And then he explained his theory about drama and the proscenium and how it actually works to create intimacy and then he said about it was gonna do this and I'm like, ah, okay <laughs> you won me over
1: but the, so for you it's just that one scene with the nose that one frame of the nose that justified it that made you see the you possibility see it. of yeah,
0: it yeah that's where okay it, the whole film is sort of designed to lead you to realize yeah. that this is a way of storytelling that works yeah but that moment is it's simply an, an, an instant in which Franco's character Decides or has to decide whether or not to do something, and the inaction is visible, and it's really interesting. Oh, that's in- yeah. Um, and um, I'm sure it would work in 2D. That mm-hmm. probably does. I mean, I haven't actually watched the 2D version, but it's out. Uh, but I see the value of 3D in that moment where you just feel like you can scrutinize because you can see, thanks to the depth, you can actually see the the pieces. You can focus on whatever you want to. Yeah. And you're drawn to this tiny moment of minimalistic expression.
1: Does he think there's a possibility or is there a possibility of there being 3D without having to wear the glasses? Everybody
0: I've ever talked to says it's possible, and then they they always say it's 10 years away, and they've been saying that for 30 years. Okay. Um, Douglas Trumbull, who uh, who is a huge proponent of high frame rate HFR, the thing that Peter Jackson tried to do with The Hobbit that did not work at all, mm-hmm. um, he believes that if you get the frame rate fast enough, you could conceivably have 3D without glasses in a smaller scale than showscan or any kind of giant 70mm projection. I mean, there, there was this thing called Tour of the Universe underneath the CN Tower in the 80s.
1: Oh, yeah. Remember, did you ever write it? No.
0: It worked. It was a process called showscan. It was two 70mm projectors at the right angle calculated with synchronized frames. Uh-huh. And it Pretty much worked if it was dark enough and there was enough motion in the room because it had to be the whole ride was a flight simulator and the, the shaking, the mild shaking uh-huh. made it work in your brain. It actually uh, helped. If you were sitting and watching it stock still, you, you kind of see it. Yeah. But yeah, that worked uh, until the film got scratchy. Or mm. anything happened yeah. that would deviate from it, and that was 1980. I was there. I, I was there. In, it was my last year of high school. I worked there in the off season, so that was 1986. <laughs> and we got to we got to ride it. We got to see it, and it worked really, really well. Yeah. But you could also see every single thing forced to work in concert. If it didn't, if one thing went out, it wouldn't work. And now with video, it's again theoretically possible, but the screens have to be really big, and the projectors have to be firing at full brightness all the time. If it starts to die, you have to replace the bulb right away. It's still really, really expensive. And no worries. It's um, like theme park only.
1: What for you it didn't work with The Hobbit? The Hobbit for me made me very dizzy. That's yeah. what I just sort of got was
0: nauseous. Did, so stuff. you saw it in 3D yeah. with the high frame. I, for me, what it was, was I was really aware. I only saw the first one in HFR. And then subsequently, I think I saw it in, two, in 3D. And then flat in that order. Okay. Those, those three parts. The frame rate version had a weird way of bending the... Because the whip pans and the, those those really yeah. speedy camera movements that Jackson loves have this way of working against the 3D yeah. and flattening things out. It almost looked like it, the whole thing was being shifted on an angle yeah every time they did that. And it just... It was... It looked like video. It just looked like weird, flat, underlit video that was also
1: in 3D. Because I saw it with, I took my nephew, who's, you know, I think he was 17 at the time. And so we went to one of those big cinemas here. And I was sitting on the side. And I just felt... Oh, if you're on the side. It was awful. I felt dizzy. And I felt that stuff was just out of focus. Like, I just sort of couldn't... And I love all those films. I'm a bit of a sucker for those films. So I was really disappointed in that because I, yeah, I couldn't be engaged with it because I was fighting my body's reaction to it, which was just, I couldn't see the story.
0: Yeah. And in addition to all the, all the technical um, problems, failings, I don't know what to call it, but mm-hmm. the complications that I encountered at the first screening was also the fact that, wow, this movie is three hours long I and mean, we yeah. haven't left the shire. Yeah, You're still here, and that, that's okay, though. You didn't, you don't mind the, the length. I,
1: distance? for me, I grew up with my uncle in Southwest Wales. We'd go to Wales for the summer, and he would read aloud. Oh. He read aloud Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit book. So I have such a, yeah, just a heart kid connection. I could. Yeah, I could watch any of those films in any manner and have no critical um, criticism of them. Just love them. You just want to be in the world. I just want to be in that world. Right. I want that story. Right. I like that world of good and evil and black and white, and it's simple, and it's and I believe that. I think we need more of that here. Right. Too many greys in our world. And yet, Winds of Desire is all grey. I know. Like, it's literally all grey for the first hour
0: and plus, and it works
1: yeah, for you. it works so well for me. Well, because, again, I think, I think it... I think what Wings of Desire does about it's just, it's just so human. It's just so allowing. It's so loving the 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 brokenness of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's really beautiful because we all are. Everybody's broken. True. Sure. <laughs> just in different ways and it and it's just this wonderful accepting and loving of that and uh, uh, forgive not even forgiving us for it, but loving us because of it. That's what makes us human. Yeah. That yeah, I,
0: I can think of no greater compliment from the angels than to want to hang out with us, to actually want to be us. Right? Even at that cost.
1: To go see how broken they are, how lonely they are, how messed up they are, how short their life is, how hard it is, it's cold, it's they can be hungry, they can, but I want that. I want to believe that that I like the idea of that being a reality still. Like the idea of, you know, your grandmother somehow Sure, yeah. Just looking over, just like not having any ability to touch or connect, but just that somebody is overseeing. And the internet hasn't dampened my need for that, (laughs) my hope for that. Right. Not need for that, not that I believe that, but I like that romantic idea
0: you know it's an aspirational fantasy right like the idea that there is not only is there someone looking out for us but then that must mean their structure and purpose yeah i i, th- I totally understand why yeah. people find that comforting
1: it's like a, it's a yeah that's exactly what it is it's just a comfort a comfort of that that there is yeah some some purpose to all of this yeah,
0: <laughs> yeah. and then i fall back on Herzog, right like all these chaos yeah. Just, you know, go have a muffin because there's a meteor coming <laughs> Whatever it is, or nature will destroy us at any moment, you will choke on a salmon bowl and... <laughs> You do him very well I know, it's terrible <laughs> I'm very bad at this I was running around, um, there, was a, there was a moment where I almost, at Tiff it sounded like he was going to do the show and then they couldn't do it. And well, it's too much of an ask. It's an hour and a half on a, in the middle of a film festival. And I totally understand. Yeah. But some part of me is also convinced that he listened to the two episodes about Strozek and Grizzly Man and heard me do it. And it's like, I won't go near that <laughs> I will have nothing to do with your program and will actively work against your show. <laughs> That's uh, funny. No, it's my terrible.
1: What death. was that documentary he did about Loch Ness Monster? Oh, Incident at Loch Ness! Yeah, which is
0: not a documentary, but is—it's—that's it's, oh, that's what makes it so great. Yeah, it's like a weird. Yeah, it's a movie about him trying to make a documentary, mm-hmm. and and it becomes its own thing. It's—it's a—it's almost a found footage movie. It's—it's it's kind of ingenious. It's here somewhere too. He's um,
1: just so—I could just watch him for hours. He's just so compelling and weird and wonderful. Yeah. You, I'll get them. I'll get them someday. You'll get them. Uh, but Just I did stop doing that.
0: <laughs> so um, the the final question of the of the podcast is also always the same, which is: What of this movie, what of Wings of Desire, have you used or borrowed or incorporated into your own creative DNA? How does do you ever find it coming out in, in the work that you do?
1: Oh, that's so nice. What a nice thought. What um, I mean, a nice question. it yeah.
0: Fascinates me the influences that we don't understand. We have.
1: Yeah. What a lovely question. Thank you. I mean, I think... W- what I love about the film is the... Is the... The listening. Just the listening. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're... Especially now, we're in such a world that everybody has to have an opinion, has to have a, a mantra, has to have a soundbite, has to have... And, and the most intimate thing you can do is to listen. And as an actor, the best thing to do is to listen. And, and to not... I remember um years ago being told that great thing about you know acting is reacting so all you put all your energy into just believing what the person is saying to you just mm-hmm. listen to them and then you just respond naturally as one would and i think that f- film yeah wings of desire it's just these people just these angels just listening just listening and and i, th- I think that is somehow trickled through me
0: yeah do you find it happening more in this life than in anything i mean it just the show again it, it puts you your character is in that perspective of observing and constantly being more present by definition than yeah. the other characters are
1: yeah right i mean it's that one thing Yeah, you know, I, I believe that's what all religion is about everything is, is is there to try to get us to be present and yet the only thing that the only time we're ever going to feel present is the moment that we're told that we're going to die yeah. and then all of a sudden you go oh now i get it now i get it um so she's yeah it's a it's a gift uh, character to play a, a gift situation to play because it is forcing you to to really and she can't put all of her because she's trying to protect the children so she mm-hmm. can't put all of her fears and her roller coaster of of, of pain and fear forefront all she can do is is watch everybody and observe them and I mean I think that's sort of her struggle she is, does try to control the first little bit she's trying to control the outcome yeah. and that's sort of her evolution is getting to a place of all I can do is is be witness to them yeah, and be witness to myself as I go through this and nobody knows because we don't know nobody knows Yeah. how long any of us have and that's kind of what's so beautiful and that's what's so beautiful about Wings of Desire too that it's worth it it's worth it just the act of being human, of experiencing humanity. It's worth it if it lasts 90 years or if it lasts 5 years. It's kind of worth it. And even if we are all told if you were told how you were going to die and when you were going to die probably no matter how appalling of a death that was we would all still choose the experience.
0: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I just I, I don't have a religious grounding I don't believe in anything except people, which is great and terrible, because you're always aware of, you know, the whole concept, free will itself is an illusion if there's nothing to defy, but mm-hmm. you can just not disappoint the people in your life. That would be a good start. That's, yeah, you know, the Joss Whedon thing. Uh, and I, I know I've mentioned this on, on the show before, but he, that my only religious philosophy is what Whedon wrote somewhere. Like, if nothing we do matters, then all that matters is what we do, which is so lame, to express, but if you actually try to do that, it
1: makes you a fairly decent person. I think that's fabulous. I mean, I think you know, I think yeah, religion. I think it's all a yeah, the a whole another podcast. Yes, about exactly. That. It gets um, heavy. But, you know, yeah, you did but it's of desire.
0: It's right. got angels in it. Yeah, uh, but yeah, there. And, and as you say, like the the simple, basic pleasure of existence is is something that comes through really clearly in the film, and mm-hmm. and it's why I can't fully write off far away so close, which is an unnecessary sequel on so many levels, except that it lets us see that he's okay, that he's happy, that it does work out. And in a weird, like, in a weird bedtime story way, I do want to know that. Yeah. I want to believe that it's going to be okay, but that's an act of faith on the filmmaker. Like, it's my faith in vendors that he's telling the story in a direction that suits the optimism and the hope of the premise, as opposed to City of Angels, which just, you know, uses this entire beautiful movie for a cheap third-act tragedy that is geared to make people think about nothing. You know, it closes the book and moves it forward.
1: But is it... I mean, maybe I'm missing the point, but is it... I think that he would still trade all that up if he did just have the one night with her? Well, maybe. I think he would still make the choice to do it, because to feel... to feel... to feel existence, to feel cold, to feel passion, to feel I think he would if he was told, Okay, you can become human but it's only gonna last twenty four hours, will you still do it? I think he still would. Yeah. Which is maybe kind of no but I guess in the other one the 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 City of Angels, she dies. So that's Right, she dies
0: to teach him what death is, which is silly, because he yeah. clearly knows.
1: He knew better than anybody. Exactly,
0: yeah. It's just yeah. one of those things where it's like, oh, you didn't understand.
1: We're gonna you make it like a German film by me- making it seem sort of dark at the end.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, as opposed to to Wings in Far Away So Close, where Bruno Guns is simply there to be happy, because that's the leap of faith. Yeah. yeah like Even if it doesn't work out with her yeah, he gets to have a pizza. Like he gets to live in the world and experience it, and just hang around. I, I kind of, you know, one of one of the other things that I thought at the very end of the first screening was like, oh, he's going to go work with Peter Falk. That that uh-huh. sounds, like, that sounds like the best destiny in the world, right? You just hang around Peter Falk all day. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, who, when I met yeah. him, showed up for this. Um, it was for. Uh, it was for a woman under the influence. And the other four Cassavetes films that were rescued by Disney in 1992, they bought the rights to this package of films that, that he produced for Castle Hill, I don't know. Castle Hill bought the theatrical, and Disney bought them for home video, and they released them on Laserdisc and VHS. That's how old the story is. Uh, a Woman Under the Influence had been out of circulation forever, and then there were these five restorations. So the same five films that are in the Criterion box set now. So it's A Woman Under the Influence, Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Faces, Shadows, and Opening Night. Disney got the rights, they flew out a bunch of journalists, it turned out to be four people. Myself from the Toronto Star, I was the only one there from Canada, and there were three other people there, and we had a, a brunch at the AFI with General Rollins, Peter Falk, Seymour uh, oh, cool. Cassell, and Al Rabin. Oh, it was amazing. <gasps>
1: Super cool, I was yeah. 23,
0: and it was the best thing I'd ever done. Oh my god! Uh, and Peter Falk showed up, and it was, you know, like the card dropped him off, and he just, it's 1130 in the morning on a, like a Friday in California. Like, can I, do you have any red wine? Can I have a glass of red wine? You just keep it filled. And he was just <laughs> everything you'd want him to be. Nice. I got, a, I got to sit at a table with him and Rollins and one other journalist. I got from, I think he was there from the Tower Records magazine, Pulse. Okay. Just again, kids, Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and we just talked about Cassavetti's and, and work for all of that and I did get to ask him about Wings of Desire and he just said yeah how do you not play you if somebody asks you yeah yep I see it
1: yeah oh how what a delightful memory what a delightful experience yeah I'm
0: so glad to have been able to do that and to have already known his work yeah as well at that age because now obviously everything's accessible and you can the kids today—they don't understand. You had to go get a VHS You had to work hard. Machines.
1: Yeah, you had yeah. to work hard. You had to find the place. So I'm rolling your dog's ear. No, it's okay,
0: Susan. Completely, you
1: seem okay with
0: it. Oh yeah, I'll let you do anything.
1: Aww. um Yeah, you had to work for it. It's fine. I do sound like an old person now. I kind of miss that though, having to work for it. Yeah. Because it was easier way to show your passion, and then you also had more of a connection to that passion. Mm-hmm. Like I, I've always been a huge lover of music, and. Now, I put my computer on. I just put Shuffle on iTunes, and songs come up. And I'm like, who is this? Yeah. I'm like, oh, God, that's awful. I used to... I would know who it was. I would know who produced it. I would know what the cover art was on the album. Right. And now it's just...
0: But there was the... I mean, it was it was totemic, right? Like, there was a ritual of pulling the CD out, or the, uh, the record, or the cassette. Yeah. None of that happens anymore. I mean, yeah. it still does if you force yourself. I, I was at HMV last week, and I brought home... Uh, Fully, completely has been reissued in a special edition with a with a concert at the from the Horseshoe Tavern in nineteen ninety two. Oh wow! As the bonus CD, it's like I have to have that.
1: Oh, that's cool. Yeah,
0: and it's right over there, and I can play it anywhere I want to because it's a CD.
1: That's cool. And
0: apparently, it's on iTunes as well, but I don't want it on iTunes.
1: I actually admit to having a turntable and a oh, receiver and speakers in the back of my car right now because I had them with me in Montreal, so I'm driving them back to LA. Nice. So I still go and buy my vinyl. Old school Absolutely (laughs) My thanks to Tori Higginson Whom you can
0: see on CBC Sundays at 9pm In This Life And this Friday in theaters in The History of Love Thanks also to Julia Caslin She knows what she did You can find Tori on Twitter at Tori underscore Higginson Two R's, two G's And you can find Wings of Desire on Blu-ray and DVD in the Criterion Collection in an excellent special edition. You can also find it for sale or rental on iTunes, and lucky American listeners can stream it on Criterion's new Filmstruck service, where it's accompanied by most of the special edition extras, but only the DVD and the Blu-ray have Vendors and Fox audio commentary, and take it from me, that is priceless. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at NowToronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. This week's call sign is, I'm a friend. Thanks for listening.